Hey, what's up, everybody? I've said it before. I often use my call experiences to find great topics for the podcast. Well, yesterday on call, a patient came in with acute vaginal bleeding from suspected placenta accreta at just 25 weeks gestation. It was a great teaching case for the residents, but of course, it was pretty stressful. So I thought it would be good to review placenta accreta spectrum according to the obstetric care consensus by the college. So let's do that now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Placenta accreta is defined as abnormal trophoblast invasion of part or all of the placenta into the myometrium of the uterine wall. Placenta accreta spectrum, which was formerly known as morbidly adherent placenta, refers to a range of pathological adherence of the placenta, including placenta increta, which is where the placenta invades into the wall, percreta, where it goes all the way through the wall, or placenta accreta, which means it's just embedded into the superficial layer of the myometrum. Maternal morbidity and mortality can occur because of severe and sometimes life-threatening hemorrhage, which often requires blood transfusion and, of course, the potential for hysterectomy. According to the college, the prevalence of placenta accreta is actually increasing in the U.S., and this increasing rate of placenta accreta over the last four decades is likely due to a change in the risk factors, most notably the increased rate of cesarean delivery. Now, there are several risk factors for placenta accreta spectrum, but the most common is, in fact, a previous cesarean birth, with the incidence of placenta accreta increasing with the number of previous cesarean deliveries. All right, so remember that, everybody. The most common risk factor is a previous cesarean delivery. But placenta previa is obviously another significant risk factor. Placenta accreta spectrum occurs in 3% of women diagnosed with placenta previa and no prior cesarean delivery. So remember, you don't need a C-section history to develop placenta accreta. You just need a placenta previa, having a previa and previous C-section obviously increased the rates even more. For women with placenta previa, the risk of accreta is 3% after one C-section, 11% after the second, 40% for the third C-section, and it's up to 60% for the fourth cesarean section. For women who have had five or more C-sections and who have a previa, the rate is 67%. All right, now remember the term middle box layer because that's always in the books. The most favored hypothesis regarding the etiology of placenta accreta spectrum is that a defect of the endometrial-myometrial interface leads to a failure of normal decidualization in the area of a uterine scar. This allows for abnormally deep placental anchoring into the myometrium. Several studies suggest that disruption within this uterine cavity caused damage to the endometrial-myometrial interface, thereby affecting the development of scar tissue and increasing the likelihood of placenta accreta. However, this explanation fails to explain the rare occurrence of placenta accreta spectrum in nulliparous women without any previous uterine surgery or instrumentation. Once again, you don't need a previous C-section to have an accreta spectrum disorder, although placenta previa alone is a significant risk factor. 
okay, obviously we want to diagnose this thing before we find a patient who's actively bleeding because we want to have a heads up that this condition is there. Most women are diagnosed in the second or third trimester during time of ultrasound. But remember, it's important to look for women who have these risk factors like previous C-sections or, of course, a placenta previa because knowing that this condition exists is vital to proper planning for delivery. Perhaps the most important ultrasonographic finding of placenta accreta spectrum in the second and third trimester is the presence of placenta previa, which is present in more than 80% of accretas in one large study. Other grayscale abnormalities that are associated with placenta accreta include multiple vascular lacunae within the placenta loss of the normal hypoechoic zone between the placenta and the myometrum, remember that's that absent Nittelbach layer, or decreased retroplacental myometrial thickness, usually defined as less than one millimeter. There could also be abnormalities of the uterine serosa bladder interface anteriorly or extension of the placenta into the myometrum grossly. The use of color flow Doppler also helps facilitate the diagnosis. Turbulent lacunar blood flow is the most common finding of placenta accreta spectrum on color flow Doppler imaging. So it's important to ask the radiologist or the sonotech to use Doppler if you suspect this condition. Other Doppler findings of placenta accreta spectrum include increased subplacental vascularity, gaps in myometrial blood flow, and vessels bridging the placenta to the uterine margin. Here's another clinical pearl. Although most studies report high sensitivity and specificity for OB ultrasound in the diagnosis of placenta accreta spectrum, remember that there is no one feature or even combination of features that's associated with this condition that reliably predicts the depth of invasion or the type of placenta accreta spectrum. So remember, always have a high index of suspicion because these are all just ultrasonographic models markers, but they don't really tell you the depth of attachment or of penetration. So then the question comes in, well, what about MRI? Could MRI be helpful to try to give some better information, more delineation as to depth of penetration than just ultrasound? According to the college, it's unclear whether MRI improves the diagnosis of placenta accreta spectrum beyond that achieved with ultrasound. MRI may be useful for diagnosis of difficult cases like the posterior placenta previa where posterior accreta is suspected or possibly to assess better the depth of invasion of a percreta. However, proof of clear value is lacking and there are downsides to MRI worthy of consideration. MRI is more expensive than ultrasound and is less widely available. Also, it requires higher expertise to read this MRI in these kind of disorders. Thirdly, MRI is not the preferred recommended modality for the initial evaluation of possible placenta accreta spectrum for these two other reasons. Now that we've established that ultrasound, either grayscale or with Doppler, is our go-to for diagnostic testing, what's a reasonable approach to look for this condition? Well, a reasonable approach, according to the college, is to perform ultrasound exams at about 18 to 20 weeks, again at 28 to 30 weeks, and then 32 to 34 weeks in asymptomatic patients when this condition is suspected. 
This allows for the assessment of previa resolution, placental location to optimize timing of delivery, and possible bladder invasion. There is some correlation with cervical length and the risk of preterm birth with previa, but cervical length has not been extensively evaluated in placenta accreta spectrum. Now, one small study noted no increase in the risk of preterm birth with a short cervix with accreta. Placenta previa, and here's a clinical pearl, is not a contraindication to transvaginal ultrasound. And I've heard that from some providers. You know, we can't do a transvaginal because she's got a previa. That's not true. You just can't put a lot of pressure on the cervix. But once again, according to the college, previa is not a contraindication to transvaginal ultrasound. And ultrasound examination may provide important information about placenta accreta spectrum and previa in addition to cervical length. All right, podcast team, let's start wrapping this up by looking at management. Timing of delivery decisions need to balance maternal risks and benefits with those of the fetus or the neonate. It appears that performing a C-section followed immediately by cesarean hysterectomy before the onset of labor improves maternal outcomes, but the optimal timing remains unclear. But there's some guidelines. We're going to get to that right now. A decision analysis does suggest that 34 weeks of gestation is the optimal given the ability of most large centers to handle neonatal complications at that gestational age. Although individual factors are relevant, a window between 34 weeks and 35 weeks of gestation is suggested as the preferred gestational age for scheduling cesarean delivery or hysterectomy absent extenuating circumstances in a stable patient. Again, the exact dates favored by the college are 34 weeks and zero days to 35 weeks and six days. Now, no amniocentesis is necessary at these gestational ages for fetal lung maturity because that doesn't change the clinical recommendation. Of course, earlier delivery may be required in cases of persistent bleeding, preeclampsia, labor, ruptured membranes, fetal compromise, or maternal comorbidities, including active bleeding. Now, waiting beyond 36 weeks and zero days is not advised because about half of women with placenta accreta spectrum beyond 36 weeks will require emergent delivery for hemorrhage. So remember, the best time is between 34 weeks and zero days and 35 weeks and six days, trying not to go over 36 weeks. Of course, the use for steroids for fetal lung maturity is advised when delivery is planned before 34 weeks. All right, now remember, I said that steroids can be given when delivery is planned at 34 weeks or below. Although, remember, of course, the antepartum late preterm steroids trial called the ALPS trial recommended steroid administration between 34 weeks and 36 weeks and six days. But in light of new information that has shown that these fetuses, these neonates who receive steroids in the late preterm period and then went on to deliver at term may be at higher risk of surgery 
certain behavioral and neurodevelopmental outcomes. There's now been a pullback and there's now been more of a kind of a cautious restriction on the use of steroids in this late preterm era. So remember right now, ACOG hasn't really said not to do it, but it's more controversial. So no one will question, of course, giving steroids when delivery is planned under 34 weeks. But between 34 and 36 weeks and six days, it's now become a little bit more controversial. And so individualization and shared decision making should be used. Now, we can't finish our discussion on antepartum management without a quick word about bed rest. Bed rest, or decreased activity, is of unproven benefit in all settings, including placenta accreta spectrum, although in the past it was often advised, especially in the setting of bleeding. So remember, bed rest is no go. It's just no value even in this condition. Of course, in women who have an episode of bleeding with placenta previa, they're at increased risk of subsequent bleeding. So issues like distance from the hospital or referral center and other logistic considerations can also influence the decision whether to keep the patient hospitalized after that first or sentinel bleed or let her continue as an outpatient if she has quick and easy access to a hospital facility. As we try to prepare the patient for cesarean section, we have to try to correct any modifiable factors that could be at play, including iron deficiency anemia. When iron deficiency is noted, all efforts, including oral replacement, intravenous infusions, and when indicated, even the use of erythropoietin-stimulating agents can be employed. Autologous advanced blood donation and serial hemodilution strategies are infrequently used, and they are not routinely recommended. And lastly, a quick word about conservative measures at time of placenta accreta intraoperatively. Remember, because placenta accreta spectrum is potentially life-threatening, hysterectomy is the typical treatment and is still the standard of care. Uterine preservation, referred to as a conservative option, where most of the placenta is removed without removal of the uterus or expectant management, which is defined as leaving the placenta behind in situ are not standard and should be considered investigational. In addition to bleeding, infection and febrile morbidity have been reported with these conservative measures. Severe morbidity, defined as sepsis, septic shock, peritonitis, uterine necrosis, fistula, injury to adjacent organs, acute pulmonary edema, acute renal failure, DVT, or pulmonary embolism, and even death have been reported in these uterine conservatory expectant management protocols. Some authors have advocated with expectant management the use of methotrexate as a way to help hasten placental involution and resorption. But according to the college, because of the unproven benefit and the possible harm of this medication, methotrexate to hasten placental resorption is just not recommended. And lastly, the issue of delayed interval hysterectomy, which the college considers a variant or a derivative of the expectant approach to placenta accreta spectrum, should be considered investigational without additional data of efficacy. Remember, the standard of care is still a cesarean hysterectomy, and that's a total hysterectomy, not supracervical, at time of the index surgery. 
All right, podcast family, we have covered the obstetric care consensus from ACOG and the SMFM regarding placenta accreta spectrum. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.